We started a, sh a short sermon series last week, if you were with us. Started a series uh, of, on the book of Ruth that we're calling Ruth, A Love Story. And what a great thing to do around Valentine's Day, uh, last week and next week and then this week, just to take a couple weeks and talk about a love story. Everyone's being real romantic this time of year, right? I, I heard that some people were going to be serenading their, their dearest later online. I'm pretty sure I heard that, um, that Andrew was going to be singing to Lindsay and recording it on Facebook uh, for us all to hear as he serenades her his favorite love song which we don't know what it is yet, but we'll hear it. And uh, that's great. And, and just to be equal opportunist, Bethany is also singing to Ben later on, on online. So it's going to be a lot of fun today. So be, be watching for that. But um, anyhow, uh, we think about love and a love story like Ruth. And so that's great. But here's the thing. Love is so much bigger than just the romantic version that we think about in Valentine's Day. Love is something deeper broader and bigger. And I hope that today as we continue the story of Ruth, we'll see that. In fact, the story of Ruth begins not even talking about Ruth, but about a different woman, a woman whose name was Naomi. And if you were with us last week, you heard about Naomi, but let me remind you just a few things. Naomi was married to a man named Elimelech. Elimelech and Naomi lived in the city of the town of Bethlehem in the land of Israel. And in Israel, of course, a, a, the, a famine had come to the land during their lifetime, and many people were hurting. Crops were not producing. There was droughts. There was just a, a, a difficult time during this famine that lasted for quite a while. And because of all that was going on, uh, Naomi and Elimelech made a decision together that they were going to move out of the country which is a very, very big deal because in doing so, they were basically losing the right to their own property. Like the properties, as we'll, as we'll see later, could stay within the tribe or the broader family, but their property, property ownership was a very big deal in culture in general. In those days, you know, agrarian cultures, property was wealth. And also in the, in the Hebrew culture, property was, uh, was a part of their identity, the tribes that God had given them in this promised land. So for Elimelech and Naomi to leave the country during this famine and basically just abdicate their right to that property was a very huge thing to do. And they didn't just leave Bethlehem and they didn't just leave the country. They went to the country of Moab, which was a place that, uh, my goodness, Israel had a, a rough history with when they had uh, been traveling to this promised land. Their interactions with the Moabites were very detrimental spiritually for the, for the Israelite people. And so this was a very particularly interesting place to go. But they left. And, and as you read the story last week, and we didn't talk about this, but you almost would wonder why it was that, you know, they would do something like this. I mean, other people were also experiencing a famine, but they didn't leave. Were, were, were Boaz and Naomi, I'm sorry, was, was Elimelech and Naomi, just people who wanted to go explore. And this was a good excuse to finally do it. Sometimes that's what we do. We want to go do something that we want to do. We just got to find a reason, right? And a famine was a very good reason to justify the idea that, hey, we can't stay here, so we're moving out, out of the country. And they went to the land of Moab. And Elimelech and Naomi took with them their two sons, Malon and Kilion. And the whole family ends up there. 
And while they're in Moab, Elimelech dies. We don't know how he died, what he died from, but he dies. And Naomi is a widow. Her two sons, Malon and Kilion, marry girls from Moab. They married two Moabite girls during the time they lived there. But over the next 10 years, both of Naomi's sons, Malon and Kilion, also die. So now, poor girl, poor Naomi. Can we just for a minute sympathize? She's like the uh, next version of Job in the scriptures. She, she's lost her homeland because they moved away. And I, we don't know if that was her mutual decision or if she was just following her husband in that kind of a climate. She's lost her, 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 her support system back home, their property. Her husband is dead. Her sons are dead. She has nothing left. She's a foreigner in a strange land. And she has two daughters-in-law who have lost their husbands, her sons, who've died also. She has nothing and, and you, we, we don't understand sometimes how bad that is. We would understand today, many a woman today would wonder what would she do if she lost her, her husband and her partner and, and her, her children just to get by. But in that climate, it was way worse because women didn't really have much of any rights. I mean, it's not great today. We're still people fighting today for women to have equal uh, pay, pay and, and things that are still, you know, not... We've not come far enough. And in some parts of the world today, it's way worse for women than, than, it, than even it is anywhere else. But in those days, it was kind of the norm for women to be, to, they didn't have a lot of voice. Forget voting, they didn't have places to vote then anyhow. They, women couldn't uh, be uh, witnesses uh, that were trustworthy because they were women. They couldn't um, own property. And it was just it was a different world. And a lot of times a woman's ability to thrive came down to being married to somebody who would provide. A lot of marriages were done for, uh, for other reasons because that's, you've got to live. You gotta, everyone wants to eat and live indoors, right? So, so for Naomi to be a widow, her prospects are very limited. She, if she could go back home and somehow find the property for sale and get it that they lost, she couldn't own it. She, she was destitute. And she wasn't a young, you know, child anymore. She didn't have a lot of prospects. Her daughters-in-law had the chance at least of finding someone who would marry them again and maybe they're young enough to find love and find a future and find a provision for themselves. But Naomi's prospects were limited and her strength was gone. She didn't have the stamina to go out and figure out how to make yourself survive as a widow. Widows and orphans were just people who were in trouble back then. And so Naomi is grieving the loss of her husband and her sons. And at some point, word comes back into Moab. Word comes back into Moab that, that the famine was well over in Israel. All the years that she was gone, the famine was over. And Israel was doing wonderful again. Israel was blossoming. It was going so well. People were, were just, it was just great. Prosperity again. And so Naomi decides, I'm going to leave Moab and head back to home, even though I don't have my husband or kids anymore, our land anymore, I can at least go back and, and live by people I know, my own country, things are better there. So she, so she packs up and she begins to go, and her daughters-in-law begin to go back with her. But at some point, Naomi turns to her girls and she says to them, I can't help you, go back to your parents. And they are insisting on staying with her. And, and Naomi has to basically say to them, look, I have nothing to offer you. If I were to somehow find love again and marry at this point, yeah, right. And somehow have children again, yeah, right, at this point. 
Would you wait that long with all those other miracles in place? Would you still wait that long for me to give you new husbands someday? Come on, girls. I have nothing to offer you. And she convinces these girls to leave. And they don't want to do it. So, so finally, through tears and hugging and emotions and crying, the one daughter-in-law, Orpah, returns back to her parents because that's where she was from. Why should, she, why should these girls leave their home country and go to a foreign place like Naomi did? She came with a family. They went with nobody. Why should they go to Israel with her? So she convinces Orpah, stay. And she convinces uh, Ruth, you should stay as well. Because I can do nothing for you. What we saw last week was this. That Naomi could have very well been selfish here. She could have very, and this is what we tend to do. She could have very well said, everything has gone against me. Everything has gone wrong for me. It's about time to look out for number one. You know what? These girls can't help me, but I need them. We're all widows. They have better prospects. They might bring another man into the family. They can, they're younger and stronger. They can care for me. They can work. I need them. They don't need me, but I need them. I'm going to drag them back to my home with me and let them take care of me. That would have been something that she could have done and said, after all, I've lost so much. It's time I thought of myself. But even in her grief, even in her loss, Naomi looked at those girls and said, What's best for me is not what's best for you. You all should go home. I insist go home. And we saw that that's what love does. It serves and cares for others. That even when it's feeling unloved and forgotten and overlooked, it still cares for others. Well, the one, the one daughter-in-law goes home. But Ruth looks at her, the widow Ruth, the other daughter-in-law, looks at her widowed mother-in-law and refuses to leave. We skipped a couple of verses in chapter 1. Let's look at them again. Ruth chapter 1, verse 15. Look, Naomi said to Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. In other words, this makes no sense. Your support system is here. Your family's here. Everything you're familiar with is here. Your prospects are here. You should stay here. I know I need the help but you need to stay here. Go. This is our third time telling her to go. And look what Ruth says. It's so beautiful. I don't want you to miss it in verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Wow. That wasn't a statement right there. Here's what's interesting. I've seen that verse, we just read that very long verse. I've seen that verse before on wedding programs incorporated in the vows between a husband and a wife when they get married, right? That's a very common verse. And it's a great verse for a wedding because it speaks of commitment. It speaks of somebody saying, I'm committing to go where you go, to be where you are, to live with you, to die with you. Nothing's going to separate us. It's a beautiful thing for a wedding, for any kind of commitment, because it's appropriate. But don't miss it now. Ruth isn't saying this to her man. Ruth, the widowed young girl, is saying this 
to her widowed mother-in-law. She's saying to her, I'm that committed to you. You need someone. She was doing to Naomi what Naomi was trying to do. Ruth was saying, I've lost a husband. I'm grieving. But you've lost more. And how are you going to get by? And I'm not going to leave you. And I'm in it for the long run with you, girl. And I'll go wherever you go. It's amazing. And when I read the story, several thoughts come to mind. Ruth's exemplary attitude is amazing. But also Naomi. What kind of person was Naomi that her daughters-in-law didn't want to jump ship? Seriously. I mean, wouldn't it have been easy for, any of the, for, for Ruth to say, uh, lady, um, you, you came to this land and moved here. You're not one of us. But um, my goodness, I don't know what, what you did to offend your gods back home in Israel. But your husband's died. Your sons have both died, which leaves me a widow. And you are cursed. And I am not, I'm getting off this train right now. See ya, wouldn't want to be ya. I mean, seriously, it would have been a lot of room for, for Ruth to say, I'm out of here. And, but, but neither girl, I mean, we saw it last week, neither girl wanted to leave. Naomi had to try several times, took her two pushes to finally drive the one back home to her parents, and Ruth still wouldn't leave after a third conversation. So Naomi must have been someone pretty special for these girls to say, we will stand by you. She must have been quite the loving mother-in-law how many people want to stand in line to say, I mean, how many, some of you guys here, if your mother-in-law said, hey, get out of here, you'd be like, say the word, I'm out of here. I mean, seriously, this, this girl, this, these girls are committed. She's committed to, to Naomi. And what does it say for Ruth? To, to watch Naomi come from her homeland and lose everything, and for Ruth to have nothing but to say, I'm going to go live as a widowed woman in a strange country with you because you need someone to take care of you. And I'm going to go there away from my homeland like you should, probably shouldn't have done when you came here. Let's, let's do this. Because Naomi needed her. That's amazing. Everything we said about Naomi last week is true about Ruth. The love, the genuine, true, sacrificial, serving love is unbelievable in this girl. Now, if you were with us last week, we gave you a few statements about what love is. Love is this, love is that. Let me give you another one here today that we see from Ruth. That love is serving without expectation of reward. See, a lot of us, we like to serve when we believe there's something in it for us. Like we'll, we'll do something for somebody else if by doing, scratching their back, they can later scratch ours. If by doing something for them, they could later help us. If, if, they, if they are wealthy enough to maybe bless us financially, if it can make us rich someday or famous or appreciated or, or, or someone could owe us a favor or whatever it may be for prestige, we're really good at doing stuff hoping that it's going to turn around and, and pay off for us one day. But there's just those times in life when you have to decide, am I willing to serve and help and sacrifice and give someplace that can do nothing back for me in return? There's nothing in this for me. Naomi had nothing to offer Ruth. She was an old widowed woman, and Ruth would have to leave her own country to go help the lady as she returned back home. She had nothing to offer her. And yet, Ruth said, I don't need anything from you. You need someone to take care of you. That is love. Love is serving without expectation of reward. It takes something more. There's a lot of reasons we could serve with expectation of reward. 
But there's only one reason we would serve without expectation of reward, and that is the kind of love that God has for us and has put into us. Now, we understand this truth, don't we? And, and we may hear this and wonder, I get that, Arlen, I understand that. But here's my question. Okay, I serve without expecting a reward, but is there ever a reward? I mean, is there ever a payoff for that kind of love? Does anyone ever notice? Will it ever come around? And the answer is no and yes. No in the sense that you can't serve without expecting reward, but yes. And we'll see how in just a few minutes here. Let's continue the story today in Ruth chapter 2, focusing largely on the character of Ruth. Ruth 2 verse 1. Now there was a wealthy and an influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. So don't miss the setup here. Elimelech and Naomi, the couple who left Israel, abandoned their land, and went to Moab. Elimelech died. Elimelech had a relative whose name was Boaz. So, so Naomi's back in town. So Naomi would be the widow of his relative Elimelech. This is Boaz talking here. Boaz is wealthy. He owns a lot of property, which is how you measured wealth then. He was influential. He was somebody in his community. He was somebody in Bethlehem. Boaz is kind of the man. And, and, and he's the guy we notice in chapter 2 and verse 1. Well, anyhow, verse 2, it says, One day Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain that are left behind by anyone who's kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, All right, my daughter, go ahead. What is Ruth doing? Ruth is doing what poor people and, and, and widows and orphans and, and, and poor people often did in those days. They would go to the fields of the wealthy and they would look for leftover scraps left behind when they finished harvesting. If you were to walk into the fields of other people and steal before they harvested the land, that would be called stealing. You could get in trouble for that. But once they harvested their land, you can go after them and pick up behind them any scraps that were left behind. Anything that wasn't picked off the stalks or anything that fell onto the ground. In fact, that was a very common thing in many cultures. Not just an Israel thing. The people who were poor would find that that's how you kind of survive. That's how people let their poor get by. They could pick over the land once it was harvested. But in Israel, in Israel it was a step further. In Israel it was not just something that they did for the poor people, but it was actually baked into their laws. That when Moses gave the laws to the new nation, they said to the people of Israel, if you own land... When you harvest your land, you are not to go over the, the, the harvest area two times. Go over it once. Anything that you leave behind the first time is there for the poor. Now, why would people go over, the, over it twice? Because like any good business owner, you want to get every last cent out of your work. That's why you go over the area twice. Did I miss anything? Is there a little more profit left on the table? Is there more grain to harvest and more corn to harvest? Is, I want to sell all that I can. This is my living. This is my livelihood. So people wanted to go thoroughly over their fields. And the law in Israel was, you can go thoroughly over it the first time, but you don't go over it twice. Because if you happen to miss anything the first time, let the poor eat off of it. And so 
I think people worked extra slow the first time to not miss anything since they couldn't go twice. But on top of it, there was an extra law baked into the laws of Israel. The extra law was that they were to leave the corners of their fields unharvested. That means not even picked over once, so that the very corners and edges of their fields could be walked in and have easy access to better food for the poorest among them. There's just laws built in to take care of their poor who couldn't afford a field or couldn't afford to plant or harvest themselves. But even where they did harvest, they were supposed to leave the scraps if anything was left unpicked. And Ruth understood this because every culture did something like that. And she walks out and says, Mom, to her mother-in-law, you're old and you're not up for this. You stay here and take care of things in the house. I'm going to go out and work in the fields in the heat of the day and in the whatever's going on. I'll work in the fields and see if I can scrounge up enough food to get us through today. And I'll go back and do it again tomorrow somewhere else and the next day somewhere else. And maybe, just maybe, just maybe I have the means to help us survive. Verse 3. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. We mentioned Boaz earlier, this powerful, rich, influential man in the community. She doesn't know it, but she happens to be in one of his fields. He has many fields. And she's um, working in a field that day. Verse 4 while she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. So don't miss this now. Here is Boaz. He's been on a trip into town doing business. He's the owner. He's, he's the man who owns the property. He's the man who owns all the fields. And he has employees working for him, men and women out there harvesting the fields for pay. And, and Boaz also has a foreman who's in charge of the job site, and he just goes and does his thing and comes back and checks on things once in a while. And on this particular day, while Ruth is out there in this field, Boaz comes by this particular field to check on things. He greets the workers, and the workers greet him. Verse 5, Then Boaz asked his foreman, Who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? Isn't that a funny choice of words in today's culture? Who does she belong to? Who's that young woman? And by the way, he notices her, doesn't he? Because she stood out. She was not from there. She was from a Moabite woman. He, he says, who is that girl? I know who my workers are. I know that, um, you know, I have, um, you know, my employees, my guys and my girls who work in the fields and I pay them. And I know sometimes people show up to, who, to, to pick off the extras if, they, if they're in need. But I don't know her. Who is she? Verse 6. The four men replied, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes of rest in the shelter. So don't miss it now. So Ruth is coming into the story here. And she doesn't just show up and take her chances on gleaning in the fields behind the harvesters. She actually goes to the foreman and says, listen, I don't want to cause trouble. Because you could cause trouble. If you're not wanted somewhere, you could get run off or potentially harmed or with a bunch of young men in the fields, potentially worse. So she finds the, the guy in charge of the job site and she says to him, is it okay if I come after your harvesters and, and, and try to find some food for my mother-in-law and me? 
To which the foreman had obviously said, yes, go ahead, we allow that. That's kind of baked into our laws. And so now Boaz is there saying, who's the girl? And, and he's saying, Boaz, uh, that's the Moab, girl from Moab with Naomi. Oh, Naomi, my relative Elimelech who died, that's his wife, widow. That's the girl that came back with her? Yeah. And she got permission. She's been working hard in the hot fields, took a few minutes of rest in the shelter. Other than that, working tirelessly. Verse number eight. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter. Don't miss that, by the way. She's much younger than him. Remember, she, he was a relative of her father-in-law who died. Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men to, uh, not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. In those verses, here's what happens. Can you picture the, uh, Ruth over there working? The big boy, Boaz shows up. This is the man. And then all of a sudden he's looking at her, asking questions. And then he walks over to talk to her. Can you imagine her waiting for him to say, get off my property? Who are you, you crazy foreigner? Get out of here. He walks up to her and, and looks at her and says, hey. And she's like cringing maybe. And he says to her, not only can you stay and work, but I want you to keep coming back here every day. Why try to find another place where you'll feel safe? You come back here. And you just stay with my girls. You'll be safe among them and work. And I told the guys to leave you alone. I warned them to leave you alone. But if you need something to drink, they'll get it for you. They've been told. He's looking out for her right away. Now we're going to skip a couple verses for now and come back to them before the sermon's over. But he basically just does, he does a huge favor to her. Again, he had no obligation to do this other than to say people are free to pick off the land. But he actually says, stay here, come back here again, stay with my girls, and we'll get you some water if you're thirsty. And the guy, everyone's been warned to leave you alone. Verse 13, skip down to verse 13 for now. I hope I continue to please you, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I am not one of your workers. She's saying, I was scared when I came here, as I always would be, that I would not be well received or run off, perhaps. And you've come over here with the power to do anything, and you have actually been kind to me, and that has brought me comfort. Thank you for comforting me. I'm not one of your workers. You owe me nothing but thank you. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz called to her, come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with his harvesters and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. Don't miss that now, that's good stuff. He didn't just say, go get your food off the field, your freeloader, and go back home. He said, hey, when we sit down to feed the workers, when we sit down to feed the employees, you come over here and sit down with them. We're going to feed you too. Wow. He gives her all that she, he, he says, eat with us. Here's some more. And she ate till she was full and she had leftovers to take home. She had her doggy bag. Amazing. Verse 15. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, he says, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her. That's a big statement. 
What he's saying is this. He's saying the poor are supposed to come behind you a ways, and if you happen to leave anything unharvested, they can help themselves to pick through the leftovers. But he says to the guys, you let her, if she is bold enough to come up to the front, kind of pick the good stuff, you let her do it and you don't stop her. But he also knew that she probably wouldn't be bold enough to come to the front and pick the good stuff. So he goes on to say more to them. He says in verse 16, And pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. She might not take, be bold enough to get her own, so you just take some good stuff and you drop it, whoops, and leave it behind. So she has to pick it up. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. He's basically saying take care of this girl very well. So Ruth gathered barley there all day. And when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. Picture this. She's picturing that she's going to get enough food maybe to get home hungry and her and her mother-in-law can eat and survive until the next day when they figure it all out all over again. And instead she comes home with a basket full to show for her labor. I mean, look, she couldn't have known. This was was better than she ever imagined it could go. She is a widow girl in a foreign country. Mind you, by her own choice. She's there because she's taking care of her mother-in-law. But still, she's not in a good place in life. She's not in a good spot. And she's taking care of her mother-in-law. And all of a sudden, man, this guy is taking care of her, like, like really taking care of her. And she has a lot to show for it. Verse 18, she carried it back into town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal. She says, hey, here's my carryout. This is from lunch. I didn't eat it all because it was too much. Here's that, and here's a whole bunch of grain that I harvested, a whole basket full. Wow. Where did you gather all this grain today, Naomi asked. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. She says, I don't know who... Who took care of you today, but you, God has blessed you. Wow, who was it? So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked. And she said, the man I worked with today is named Boaz. Verse 20, may the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives one of our family redeemers. Now that might seem like a weird term to us today, a family redeemer. Let me explain a little bit to you. I mentioned some of the laws in Israel for taking care of the poor. What I didn't mention, but you can read in the Pentateuch, is that there was a a process in Israel by which the property would stay within their tribes that it was given to. Like every tribe in Israel was given some land and, and large family units would get pieces of that land within the tribe. But obviously, if people lost their land, they wanted to make sure it stayed in the tribe and if possible, in that very family. And so what would happen is if a person in Israel ever fell on hard times and they had to sell their property to get by, they really weren't selling their property. They basically would lease it. They would lease it out to somebody who could afford to buy it for anywhere from one year to almost 50 years. And then basically there was a built-in holiday laws to bring that property back to them at the end of that time. So someone would basically lease the property from them and take it from them for a period of time and work it, but it always went back. But if a person fell on really hard times 
and they lost their property. They weren't supposed to sell it to foreigners. And, and if they, if, or if the husband died and the wife lost her property, all these things that took place, there were still laws to where somebody in the tribe, somebody in the family could get that property. So at least, even though the person who had it lost it, it still stayed in the tribe, in the broader family. It didn't go some, but to somebody else. But the person who would buy that property within the tribe or family would have to have the money to buy it, which is a great thing because the more land you own, the more wealthy you could be, but you've got to have money to make money, so they have to have the money to buy the property. And they also would owe an obligation to any of the widowed and orphaned people left behind if someone died to lose the property. So there's a whole other story there that we're not going to get into today. But Boaz is one of these people, he's a close enough relative to Elimelech who was the property owner to where he could be one of those family redeemers for the land to make it his own for the future. And, and Naomi, when she hears that Ruth has been helped in the fields by a man named Boaz, she says, oh, he's a family, he's relative, he's your father-in-law's distant relative, he's been good to you. Verse 21, then Ruth said, uh, what's more, Boaz even told me to come back and to stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is completed. Mom, he didn't just let me work there today without giving me trouble. He didn't just take care of me today while I was there. He said, keep coming and he'll keep taking care of us. Wow. Good, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's field and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer. And all the while she lived with her mother-in-law. She's found a lot of help. Way beyond what anyone would expect reasonably, she's found help. But don't miss that last sentence there. Because while she's getting help from Boaz, Ruth is still doing this in a foreign country to her. Standing by her commitment to her elderly mother-in-law who was also widowed. She's doing this. And yes, she's getting some benefit, but she's working in the fields every day. She's not finding love. She's not moving on with her life. She's just helping her mother-in-law. And here's the thing. And I want to say that um, don't, don't fantasize the story of who Ruth is. Sometimes when we read these stories, we get the whole Disney princess character in mind. You know, the fair maiden comes along, most beautiful, fairest of them all in the land. And of course, some guy took, took notice of her and, and swooped in like Prince Charming and helped her. There's none of that going on here. There are, there are girls in the story of the Bible that are no, pointed out like Rachel and Rebecca and others for being very beautiful. No, no one says anything about Ruth being some fairest of them all maiden. She's not a Disney princess here. This is a girl who was widowed, who's a foreigner living in Israel, taking care of her mother-in-law. What we know about Ruth is awesome because she is serving and working and caring for other people. She's out in the fields with her, with her sleeves rolled up. She's out there working and providing and not looking out for herself, doing what someone needed her to do out of love. And yes, it's going pretty good for her, but she was doing it all out of love. 
I say that for this reason. Earlier in the sermon, you may remember me saying that love is serving without expectation of reward. And if you wonder, well, if you serve without expectation of reward, does it ever get rewarded? And the answer is this, that loving, loving without expectation is often rewarded in unexpected ways. Loving without expectation is often rewarded in unexpected ways. That Ruth could, knew that Naomi, who she was serving, Naomi could do nothing for her. There was nothing in it for Ruth. But while she served Naomi, expecting nothing in return but a tough existence, while she did that, her love was returned and rewarded to her in unexpected ways. And that is usually how it works when we do the right thing. When we do the right thing for the right reasons, not for our own ability, not, not, not for ourselves, it comes back in unexpected ways. Boaz and his generosity to her was unexpected. But Naomi could do nothing for her, and God was rewarding her in unexpected ways. Now, I want to go back to just a couple of verses that we skipped earlier. When, when, when Boaz was talking to Ruth and telling her, stay here, let me take care of you in our fields, Here's what happened in verse 10. We skipped this earlier. Verse 10, Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I am only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied. But I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. He's, I know you're just a foreigner and I don't owe you anything particularly. But I also know something else about you. You have served and watched out for your elderly mother-in-law since your husband. You lost your own husband. You grieved your own loss, your own widowhood. And instead of thinking of yourself, you've come here to this place to take care of your mother-in-law. And I know about that too. He says, I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. What, what, what Boaz is saying is this, Ruth, you're thanking me like I am some kind of a knight in shining armor, like I am some kind of a hero to let you eat from my fields and take care of you. You're thanking me like I'm the hero. Ruth, you're the hero. You're the one who left your homeland. You're the one who stood by your mother-in-law. You're the knight in shining armor. It's you. And I know what you did. And I know what you're doing. And I'm just giving something back to somebody who's awesome. That's pretty cool. And he makes a statement that I don't, don't want us to overlook. Verse 12. He says, May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. Ruth, you're the hero. What you've done is incredible, that you're here. Me letting you have some of my food for my wealth, I could do that. Don't have to, but that's not a sacrifice. What you've done is amazing. May the Lord reward you fully for what you've done. And I think here in this verse, this powerful statement of faith that God notices, over a millennium later, 
someone was writing a book called the book of Hebrews. And they wrote a verse down in Hebrews chapter 6 that I wonder if when they wrote these words, as they talked about how people can serve others in their faith community and serve the needy among them and serve the helpless among them, I wonder as they wrote this verse in Hebrews if they thought about passages like this a thousand years earlier. Because in Hebrews 6 and verse 10 it says, For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. And the author is saying, look, as you serve the needy among you and the helpless who can do nothing for you, God is not unjust. He won't forget your hard work. He won't forget how hard you've worked, not for them, for him. He won't forget the love you've shown not just to them, but the love you've shown to him by loving them. And that's an awesome thing. Because what, what he is saying is this, is that God notices when people forget to notice. Because sometimes serving people can be a thankless job. But we're all called to serve others. It doesn't matter who you are, there's people around you who have need. That we in love can serve them without expectation of reward. But you sit back sometimes and say, yeah, but what's in it for me? Don't look, at people for your, for your, don't look to people for validation. They'll let you down. Um, this is true for all of us. It's true in ministry. When I was in Bible college training for the ministry, we worked in the inner cities of Chicago, uh, serve, uh, serving and, and, and uh, bringing the hope of Jesus to the people there. And while I was in that ministry, one time they had a special service on a Saturday morning where they brought a pastor from a different, different state, I think West Virginia or someplace, Virginia, he came over and he spoke to all of us young men who were about to go out in the city and serve the underprivileged and the poor as we trained to serve God with our lives as pastors someday. And I sat there in the room as this guy I'd never met before spoke to all of us. And he asked us a question. He says, how many of you are going to serve the children in the city and the people up there because you love them? That's why you're going to go serve because you, because you love them. Raise your hand. And a bunch of us raised our hands. Yeah, I'm going to serve them because I love them. He says, well, if that's your reason, you'll probably quit. <laughs> what? You won't last. He says, if you serve people because you love the people and because, because you, of them, you do it for them, I'm going to tell you what they're going to do sometime. They're going to let you down. They're going to take all that you do for them and they're going to forget it. They're going to unappreciate it. They're going to actually turn against you after all you've done for them at some point. They'll be critical. They'll find harsh. They'll walk out of your life. They'll do all sorts of things to leave you empty and high and dry. And you will get jaded and you'll get burned out if you're doing it for people. He says, I want you to go up there and serve the underprivileged people of the city and serve people in your pastorate someday because you love the Lord. Because he will never let you down. He will never forget. He will never overlook you. Do it for him. And that was a big day for me. That was a day as a young man that I decided I want to do what I can do to make a difference, but I'm not doing it for the praise of man or for the appreciation of man or for anything of a man. God loves me, and I love God so much for what he's done for me. I'm going to love others the way that he loved me. I'm going to serve others the way he wants them served out of my love for him. 
and he will never forget, and he will never be unjust. He won't forget how hard I've worked for him. I'm doing it for him. Sometimes the right thing takes the right motive. And Ruth served without expectation of reward. Because love is serving without expectation of reward. But I also said that loving without expectation is often rewarded in unexpected ways. And I want to say thirdly this, that love is always rewarded by the one who loves you most. And that's your heavenly father. And while others may forget and they might forget to remember or appreciate, they might manipulate even, the one who loves you most always knows. And isn't that what we're aiming for? Aren't we aiming to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant? To hear him one day say, I am well pleased. That's all we need. He won't forget. There's a reward. When you serve people who do nothing for you, you're serving God who can do everything. And it might be heaven someday before we fully get to hear and, and fully get to see the reward for the things we do for others. But oftentimes it comes back to us in this life over and over again in ways in unexpected places from unexpected sources because God knows how to come along and bless those who serve out of love with no other ulterior motives in mind. May the Lord reward you fully for what you've done. I want you today, no matter what's happening in your world, I want you to trust in that. If you're getting weary in doing good, trust in that. God is aware. God knows. You just keep on serving him. You keep on serving people and loving people because he loves you and you're passing it on. And trust that if no one else seems to notice or care or appreciate or people take advantage of it, who cares? God is not unjust. He won't forget. He will repay you for the love you've shown, for the good you've done. Put your faith in him today and let that be the strength to carry on and make a difference. We'll finish our story of Ruth next week.